In almost every society since the dawn of time, people have wanted to know the future. There have been magicians and soothsayers, fortune tellers, um, fortune cookies. He who believes in fortune cookies is sure to have a crummy life, as they say. There is now even a uh, psychic network, if you watch late-night television. The early Romans were also curious about their future, and they had an interesting, what they called, prophecy-by-chicken method. They would take a hen and put it in a cage and put food in front of the chicken, and if that hen ate it quickly and really attacked it, it really went for it, it was a good sign if the uh, chicken withheld or was not interested or didn't eat. It was a bad omen. Now, you could see how this would be abused, and it was. They would take and starve that chicken ahead of time so that they would have a favorable reading. Perhaps the reason that we're so concerned now about what's going to happen in the future is the Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts. We have eternity in our hearts. We want to know what God has in store for the future. Israel had the same kind of yearnings, but the distinction between Israel and the other nations is that God gave them prophets who really did speak the truth of the future. In graphic detail, the prophets of Israel spoke about a time that would come in the future when God would reign upon the earth, when He would bring in everlasting peace, when the headlines of the newspapers would read differently as God rules upon the earth. All of this revolved around the Messiah. That was the hinge. That was the central promise of Judaism. The Messiah, the Christ, would come. And Jews from the beginning of Judaism until now pray this prayer almost daily. I believe with complete faith in the coming of Messiah, and even though he tarry, yet I will wait for him every coming day. Well, Jesus did come. The Messiah came, the Messiah left, and He said He would come back again. He gave them that promise. The young church at Thessalonica had those promises. They knew that Jesus was coming. They knew the judgment was coming after that. They heard about the end times, but they were still very confused as to the details, which we can all relate to, right? Even though we have the Bible, we have the written revelation, we study it quite often, there's books about it, there's still a lot of the details that are conjectured and under dispute, and we just don't know exactly all that's going to happen in the future. And so Paul, continuing his thought, as we saw last week, concerning the coming of the Lord, in chapter 5 says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. 
For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Concerning the times and the seasons, two separate words. First is chronos, where we get the word chronology. And it speaks of a season of time, a period or a sequence of events. The second word kairos or kairos speaks about a point of time, times and seasons, those seasons of times and those specific crisis points of times. Concerning those, you have no need that I write to you. Now this young church, it seems, were thinking about the future and they were wondering, okay, when is all this going to take place, Paul? We know what happened, your first visit, you mentioned this to us. So he clears up a little bit about those who die to be with Christ. We saw a couple weeks ago. We spoke about the coming of the Lord to meet the church. We saw that last week. They're still wondering, when is all this going to happen? And if I were to sum up Paul's heart in this book concerning these things, he would say, the issue is not when he comes. The issue is how you live until he comes. Be sober. Watch. Don't sleep. Don't be like those unbelievers who will be caught off guard. In other words, you should never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. You know Him. You don't know the future. You know a thumbnail sketch of what's going to happen, but the times and the seasons you have no need that I should write to you. The second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned in the Bible 1,845 times. I didn't count those. I just read that, and I'm telling you that. Uh, one out of every 30 verses in the Bible mention either the second coming or the last times. In the Old Testament alone, the second coming is the dominant theme of 17 books. And entire chunks of the New Testament, chapters, are devoted to it. Out of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are 318 references to this event, which is seven out of ten chapters somehow mention the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because of that, Throughout history of the church, Christians have looked forward to Jesus' coming. Listen to what Alexander McLaren said almost a century ago. The primitive church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. They were not looking for a cleft in the ground called the grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were not watching for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. Just the awesomeness of standing before the judgment seat of Christ one day and having him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's like, yes, that's what I've been waiting to hear for so long. Now, in the first 11 verses, I'd like to sort of sum up Paul's thoughts by giving you, out of these verses, three summary statements about this event in the future. Three summary statements. The day of the Lord is coming. The deniers of the Lord are sleeping. The disciples of the Lord are watching. And I hope you fit into that last category as a disciple of His. Let's get into verse 1 and 2 and see the coming of the Lord, or the day of the Lord, actually. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, of all the prophecies in the Bible, there is none so detailed as this thing called the day 
of the Lord, a future series of events called the Day of the Lord. It is an Old Testament term, and it is used over and over again in the Old Testament. It's not a term, however, filled with a whole lot of hope at first. It's a painful time. It's a time of judgment. It's a time of great crisis. And the day of the Lord is a term not for a 24-hour segment of time, but for a season of final judgment upon the earth. You could contrast the day of the Lord to what we would call the day of grace, which is the day that you and I live in. Today is a day of grace. God is dealing very patiently, very gracefully with this world. He is not willing that any should perish. He wants as many people to get saved as can. So he deals very patiently, gracefully. He restrains judgment. One day that'll change. Madeline Murray O'Hare, the founder, the proponent of the atheist uh, organization, says that she often sh has shaken her fist at heaven and said, If there is a God, strike me dead. See, he hasn't done it. And she brags about this, not realizing that God, in withholding or God being silent is simply an expression of His grace. Oh, Madeline, one day that'll change. The day of grace will give way to the day of the Lord. The prophets speak so often and in such detail about this event. Paul only gives us a thumbnail sketch here. Listen to what Amos said in chapter 5 of his book. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? Is it not... The day of the Lord, a day of darkness and not light, it is very dark with no brightness in it. The prophet Jeremiah in the 46th chapter of his book said, For the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord of hosts is a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself upon his adversaries. Joel said, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. I'd like you to turn to your, uh, in your Old Testaments to Isaiah chapter 13. And uh, there are so many of these prophecies about the day of the Lord. I had pages of them, and I just had to share a few of them with you. But I want you to look at several verses that speak of this event in Isaiah chapter 13. Verse 6. The first word is not a pleasant word. It's the word whale. Or as the old King Jimmy would say, howl ye. Cry, wail, mourn, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both anger or wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the ignorance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place, 
in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Jesus also made mention of this in Luke chapter 21 when he talked about the coming events of judgment upon the earth. He said, For these are the days of vengeance, and all things which are written may be fulfilled. Peter also in his book, 2 Peter chapter 2, said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So the day of the Lord, in all of its context of the Old Testament and New, is a period of final destruction or punishment upon the earth, an extended period of time where God judges directly and dramatically. If you want something more detailed than that, read Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Not now, obviously. But chapter 6 through 19 details the bold judgments, the vials that are poured out upon the earth as God judges in that final day. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we notice a few things about the coming day of the Lord. It will not be a peaceful time, though it might seem like it's a peaceful time at first. Verse 3, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. People will be saying, finally, all is well. They say, we've visualized world peace for so long. Those bumper stickers sure worked. Aren't we glad that peace has finally come to the earth, but just when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction, the Bible says, will come. In the last 3,000 years, it is estimated that 8,000 peace treaties that have been signed have been broken. We are incapable for a long period of time of maintaining peace, equilibrium with each other. Think of Bosnia. These are modern examples. The West Bank, Somalia, Sudan, and you could go on and describe the treaties that have been signed by nations now in civil war. Somebody once said that peace is that brief and glorious moment in history where everybody stops to reload. And it just seems like that is exactly what happens. It's a brief hiatus, and then the wars start again. The time of judgment upon the earth will be a time that at first would seem peaceful, and I'll tell you why. As the worlds become more turbulent, as the nations of the earth groan and moan, Jesus said that during that time, or right up to that time, there would be distress of nations with perplexity. Literally, they will have no solution. They will have no way out of their problem. It will look like it, nothing can be settled upon. We're doomed for failure. No peace. Then the Bible predicts that a ruler will come and that nations of the earth will yield their sovereignty to a dictator who has a peace plan, who will bring in temporary, quote-unquote, temporary peace. You say, oh, that's ridiculous. Ridiculous. The idea that the nations would actually yield their power over to a dictator. I don't believe that could ever happen. Well, just think back a few years, like to the 1930s, when Europe was devastated and Germany had a financial crunch. Thousands of people were starving to death and out of work. Chaos, riots broke out in the streets. And a voice of authority came along in Adolf Hitler. 
And the nation surrendered their authority to this man. The former premier of Belgium said, quote, The truth is that the method of international committees such as the United Nations has failed. And the highest order of experience indicates that only a world ruler can control the world. Let him come, and let him come quickly. Arnold Toynbee, the British historian, said, The earth is now ripe for the deifying of any new Caesar that promises world peace. Years ago, an Israeli went on record as saying, I will worship the devil if he will bring peace to the Middle East. Well, a ruler will come and will give temporary peace to the Middle East and seemingly to the rest of the world. He will form a treaty with the Jews to rebuild their temple. He will break the treaty after three and a half years, and from that point on to the end of this day of the Lord, that final three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation, is when all hell literally will break loose. Look again at verse 3. This time is characterized like a woman in labor. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Birth is a wonderful event. We celebrate it. We send notes out. We photograph it sometimes. It's, it's wonderful when a baby is born. But the process of birth isn't so wonderful, is it, women? The pain that it takes to come up to that glorious event is something that only you women who've had children know about. Us men have only observed in you. Especially that period called transition when you become like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and you become irresponsible for your actions. Such pain. Bill Cosby said, men, you'll never know what that's like. If you want to see what it's like, take your lower lip and stretch it over your head. You have an idea what the pain would be like to have a child. The birth is great. The process is painful. The birth of the kingdom age will be glorious. The process that leads up to the kingdom age will be the day of the Lord. A very painful event. And the metaphor is of a woman having a child. Jesus used the same metaphor. He said that there would be certain signs that would indicate the event is near. He said there would be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, famines, pestilence in various places. He said, though, these signs are the beginning of birth pangs. And then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. There will be signs that point to the season. The signs themselves will get worse and worse. But the tribulation, the day of the Lord, will be the worst of all. We knew that our son was about to be born, not because my wife had pain, Pain is not the indication. A contraction is not the indication. What indicates that a baby is going to be born? When they're frequent and intense. They're timed contractions. Every few minutes, same thing, same thing. And the doctor says, bring her in. Because the pain, which has always been there in the latter months, now become frequent and now become intense. Jesus said the last days would be characterized like childbirth. The signs would emerge. They would become frequent. They would become intense and they would point to a future time of judgment upon the earth. And Jesus said, watch. Now, he didn't say, 
sit down and come up with a detailed map of exactly when I'm going to come back, so it's like a little horoscope. He said, watch and be ready, for the Son of Man comes in an hour when you think not. But he did give signs that point to that season of time called the last times, the coming day of the Lord. And I think Christians are responsible to know the day in which we live, the signs of our times. In fact, Jesus rebuked Israel because they were unaware of his first coming. He said to them, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? He stood over Jerusalem. He foretold the destruction on Jerusalem because they did not know the time of their visitation. He held them responsible to know that because the prophecies were given in the book of Daniel. And then in Luke 21, he said, when you see these things begin to happen, these signs that he speaks about of the end times, when you see them begin to happen, look up, for your redemption draws near. And so just as the wise men followed the signs of that star from the east to Bethlehem, we're to be aware of the signs that we live in, the time that we live in. It's like a woman giving birth to a child. The pains of the earth become more frequent and more intense, and we think, you know what? Just right around the corner, the Lord could come back. Now look at verse 3. And uh, I'd like to read verse 3 to verse 9 with a little emphasis. I'm going to emphasize some pronouns. I want you to notice them. What I want you to notice about this reading is that the day of the Lord is both inclusive and exclusive. It includes some, it excludes others. Listen to how Paul puts it. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, change of pronoun, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the contrast? Us, them. Light, darkness, wrath, not appointed to wrath. He makes that contrast through this entire section. It would seem that Paul did not expect the believers who are alive at the time that precedes the day of the Lord, like he said in the previous chapter, to be around for the coming judgment. It's going to come upon them as a thief in the night. It's not going to come upon those who are of the church as a thief in the night. It's going to come as a bride waiting for her bridegroom. You ever watch for a thief expectantly? If he didn't show up, you leave a note, back doors open, wallets in the drawer. You're not expecting a thief. But upon those who are asleep and unaware, the judgment will fall upon them. Uh, I don't want to belabor this point, but if the church were to go through this period of the day of the Lord, this wrath of God poured out upon the earth, then the directive of Jesus Christ to his church would make no sense at all when he said to them, watch. For the Son of Man comes in an hour that you think not. If we were to go through this time and then get caught up at the end of this tribulation period, the day of the Lord, 
we would know exactly when he comes. The Bible tells us that 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation, which takes place in the middle of that seven-year period, after those many days that Jesus will come back to judge the earth. Watch. Be aware. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you think not. Furthermore, concerning that time, Jesus told his church, pray that you may escape all of these things and stand before the Son of Man. I'm praying that because he told me to do it. Pray that you might be worthy to escape all these things and stand before the Son of Man. The day of the Lord is coming. But now notice the deniers of the Lord are sleeping. Verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. Is the coming of the Lord a comfort to you or a dread? Depending on how you answer that question will determine what camp you're in. I can't wait for the Lord to come back. Or you might say, I hope he, this isn't true. It would be horrible if he came back. Then you are like that man who is asleep. Like the man who is drunk, he lives in a sense of false security, false hope. He's in a stupor, you know, danger is coming and he's unaware of it. It's about ready to sweep upon him. Whenever you mention judgment to a non-Christian, what reaction do you get? You get a number of reactions. Among them are uh, many people are either absolutely unaware or absolutely unconcerned. They, they just pass it off. Ah, there are some of you, no doubt, here this morning at this service who fall into that camp. You're just putting up with this message. You don't believe in a coming judgment. Jesus told us about you. He said, As it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know that the flood would come upon them and it took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Poor Noah. Hammering away at that boat, 120 years in the desert, building a boat to float on the ocean. Do you think he was mocked? Oh, you old turkey. Oh, yeah, judgment's going to come, right? Hey, Noah, yeah. You've been building that boat a long time. My grandfather used to say that flood was coming because you built it at his time. It's been 120 years. And one day it began to rain. People pass it off. It always rains this time of the year. And it didn't stop. It just kept coming. And they were unaware. They, life went on as usual. They dismissed the whole thought of coming judgment. Some of you pass off the future judgment upon this earth, which is, is sure to come as mere nonsense, like it was in the days of Noah. You should also know that almost every single nation ancient nation, almost without exception, has record of a flood that covered the earth. You ought to know that, lest you think, ah, oh, it's not going to happen. Somebody said most people in pews are like people in an airplane terminal. They hear announcements of arrivals and departures. They watch all the hurry and the bustle. They imagine that they're really in on the action, but they never purchase a ticket or board the plane. Awful lot of people that fill churches like that. They hear, but never act. Just remember this. You only go around once in life. And after this, the judgment. The deniers of the Lord are asleep. 
In contrast to that, the disciples of the Lord are watching. Let's look in verse 5 at the description of those who follow the Lord. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. That is the description of a disciple. You're a son of the light. In Semitic languages, the term son of means to be characterized by a certain quality. You're a son of the light. You're to be characterized by the quality of light. And that's obviously a figurative expression or a metaphor. In 1 John, it tells us God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. It's speaking of the moral purity, the holiness, the spotlessness of God. We're to take on the characteristics as we walk with God, not perfection, but that idea of becoming more and more like Him. We're sons of light. Speaking of spotlessness, moral purity. Uh, white is the color that brides wear at their wedding because it speaks of the purity for her groom. Uh, in the old movies, guys wore white. The good guys wore white. Today we don't have black and white TV. We have color. They wear just about anything. But in the old days, they wore white to make a visual difference on the screen of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So it says, walk in the light, First John chapter 5, as he is in the light. First Peter said, he called you out of darkness into his glorious light. So the idea, the description of us, is that we live in the expectation of his coming and in the light of the character of God. We're sons of light. Their description is also given in verse 6. And that is, we're awake and sober. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. We're to be spiritually alert, prophetically aware. Listen, the church is to be like a, a sentinel on guard, watching, waiting, not jumping ahead of the gun, not necessarily saying what date he'll come back, but ready at any time, planning for the future, but ready to abandon ship, if need be, for the Lord to come back. Now, why is it that we are awake? Simply because we have too much information not to be awake. That's why. You've got too much information. You know too much. You know that God is going to judge the earth one day. You know that before that day that the Lord will come back and take his church off the earth. So we need to watch. And I would say this. There's more danger for us as we live in a day of blessing, in a day of grace, and in a country that is so blessed, there's more danger for us to fall asleep than anybody else. William Burns said, A Christian is not likely to fall asleep in a fire or in deep waters. He's likely to go drowsy in the sunshine. We're in the sunshine of God's grace. Are you getting a little drowsy, a little lethargic, a little impatient? Just, oh, who cares about this? Or are you eagerly waiting, watching, sober-minded? Let me uh, take those two principles, the description as a son of light and the idea that we're awake and sober, and boil it down to what I think is a present-day application. We ought to be so living what we say that we're not hypocrites. To walk in the light which is the character of God. To be aware, to be awake, is to live what we say, lest we become a hypocrite, to live without hypocrisy. There's a lot of people who fill churches around the world who talk Christianity, but they don't live it. That's been the curse of the church from the beginning. 
And uh, we got the Christianese down pat. We know all the buzzwords. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I feel that. God showed me. But has he? You know, in the French Riviera, it's such a status symbol to have a balcony on your apartment that those who can't afford it will hire somebody to paint a balcony on their apartment. And they'll even paint wet laundry hanging from a laundry line to give it that authentic feel. That's what hypocrisy is. It is a facade that looks real, but underneath, all it is is just a very thin layer, thin veneer, living and walking in the light. Let's go a step further and look at verse 8. The discipline of those who follow the Lord. But let us who are of the day be sober, in contrast to drunk, putting on the breastplate of faith, and love. Breastplate is something that protects the chest, so protect your heart with faith, trust in God, love of the brothers, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Protect your mind and protect your heart. Listen, you want to be prepared for the coming of the Lord or the coming judgment or whatever you're being prepared for? We need to be prepared daily, protecting our hearts, protecting our minds by spending time with Him, with the Lord. Preparation for the future means preparation on a daily basis. One of the things I noted when I came back from India to this country, and it was so noticeable just walking off the airplane into an American airport, is busyness. I mean, people looking straight ahead, just boom, going a million miles an hour in a million different directions. And that's sort of our society. We're very busy. We're very scheduled. But we need to take time as Christians for our souls. We need to take a lot of time to, if we're too busy for our souls, cut back so that we can give God time. Oh, but I'm too busy. God, I can't meet with you this week. Schedule's full. Let's see. uh, Call me next month. Or tell you what, God, I'll call you next time I have a crisis. How's that? There was an explorer from the West who went to Africa. He wanted to go on an exploration. He hired some of the indigenous peoples of that country. They were going through the jungle, and this explorer was type A, aggressive, moving, planning, never stopped to rest, pushing, pushing, pushing. One day, the natives wouldn't budge. He said to the chief, what's wrong with these guys? He said, we decided to sit down for the day and let our souls catch up with our bodies. When's the last time you let your soul catch up with your body? Nourish your soul before God, putting on a helmet of hope, thinking of what God has in store for you in the future, meditating upon God's promises, spending time daily in His Word. Finally, we close with verse 11, which is the duty that we have as believers who are watching. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. What a good, practical way to close a paragraph on the day of the Lord and the coming of Jesus Christ. Comfort one another. Build one another up. Boy, this world can be pretty unfriendly, can it? Cold, uncaring. People feel so pressured and weighed down. They don't need to feel that way when they come into the presence of the Lord. They need to feel challenged, yes, but comforted that God can change their life. As the body of Christ, we need to build one another up. And notice the term each other, one another in that verse. So often we think that encouragement and counseling is done by the professionals who are at the place called the church building. Oh, I need help. I'll go see the professionals. Hey, we're here for you, but we're to be doing it to each other. 
You have a responsibility in a ministry to build up the body of Christ, as do I. Comfort and encourage one another. And it says in Hebrews chapter 10, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another daily. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching. You look to the future. You see that certain signs are happening all around you. That wakes us up to encourage one another, to warn people who are not walking with the Lord. Here's a couple things you can do. Do you know a person who says that they're a Christian, who hasn't been walking in fellowship lately, who hasn't been in the Bible, who hasn't been to church, who hasn't been walking with the Lord for whatever reason, whatever excuse they have? Then go to that person and build them up. Encourage them to walk closely with the Lord. Encourage them to get ready for the day of the Lord is at hand. Then secondly, ask yourself, are you ready for His return? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? If you're not, you should get ready. I'll rephrase that. Have you allowed Jesus to take all of the sins and all of the punishment for your sins upon Him? Or are you going to stand before God on your own? You say, hey, well, why should I make a change now? Life's pretty calm. Life's pretty good. Well, there's always a calm before the storm. But what a sad thing it would be if this earth were the closest you ever got to heaven. How horrible it would be if this message were the closest you ever got to eternal life and it was ringing in your ears for all of eternity. One day, as they say, you'll have to face the music. By the way, you know where that term comes from? Face the music? comes from Japan. Here's the story. In the ancient days, there was a man who wanted to play in the royal orchestra for the emperor of Japan. He was not a musician, but he was very wealthy, very affluent, had a lot of influence, and he paid the conductor to let him sit in the second row and pretend like he was blowing a horn. The orchestra would start, and they'd give him a horn. He'd pucker up his lips and move his fingers. Everybody thought he was playing. He wasn't. The deception went on for two years until another conductor was hired for the emperor who wanted to personally audition every musician to see how well they played, to put them in the right places in the orchestra pit. This drove this guy crazy. He was so paranoid to have to sit and face music that he could not play. And so on the day that it was his turn for the audition, he played sick. A royal doctor was summoned to examine the man. The doctor said, there's nothing wrong with him, and he was forced to go to the audition. And then he confessed, I've been a fake. He was unable to face the music that was in front of him. That's where the term comes. One day, we will all stand before God. God will know at that point whether you are real or fake. Everything will come out at that point. The day of the Lord is coming. The disciples of the Lord are watching. The deniers of the Lord are sleeping. If that's you, let the alarm go off. Wake up. It is time to get right with Him.